This is the Strode College Digital T-Level Podcast. And in fact, everyone is on, their, on edge at the moment because the government is coming in to sort of monitor the quality of this organisation through Ofsted. And Ofsted is an organisation that makes sure the government's money is being spent properly. If they come around and say this college is falling apart the seams, if they don't hide stuff well enough, then they can start reducing their funding. Um, and again, if, if people don't do particularly well at, at the end of the year, bit by bit, that will come back to the government and they'll start reducing the funding. Right, so public companies are, are organisations run by the government for the people in order to make life better. Right? But again, there is a mix of things as well. At the moment, as it currently exists, the NHS, for example, is mostly public body. It is paid for and run for our benefit, and it is free at the point of service. So if you get ill, any time of your life, you go to a local hospital, you will be treated or a local GP surgery. That's not the case anymore for, used to be, but not anymore for dental. So once you turn 18, you start getting people charge, and they're quite high. It's not after 16, no, is it 16 or 18, I think, glasses or start costing money, etc. So a lot of those organisations were public, are now private. So they're run by private individuals or private organisations in order to make money for the organisation that owns them. And then within private companies, you've then got different types of companies. So SMEs, small, medium enterprises, large enterprises, I guess like Google and things like that. And then non-government organisations tend to be charities. So charities get some money from government, and some of it they raise through charitable donations. And you've got some other things in between. We talked about quangos, which is similar to sort of thing. Right? Quangos are crazy non-autonomous government organisations. So they get some government funding to do the government's job. And to some extent, to some extent, Ofsted isn't a government department, but it does stuff on behalf of the DfE, which is the Department for Education. Right, so those are the main, the two main types of company: public, funded by government; private, different sized companies, and it's they exist only to make profit back for things. And again, at the moment, most of the private companies are generating a huge amount of income in order to pay back their shareholders, because a lot of companies cannot afford to do it on their own. They have to borrow money on the markets. And in, in doing so, they'll say, well, if you lend us some money, we'll give you X percent back in share value. Right, so that's the main type, those are two main types of company. You've then got uh, voluntary or charity companies. At the moment, the, rather strangely, as millionaires and billionaires has increased, so has the number of food banks in the UK. And that there are now more food banks in the UK than there are, I think, WH shops. That's good. That's as the money goes up to the top, it, it disappears from the bottom and then people can't feed themselves. Uh, there's a famous German uh, comedian who says in Germany they don't uh, have charities, they pay their taxes. Over the years taxes have gone down and down and down and down, which means they cannot fund things. So they have to rely on charities. And charities is big business. I, two of my best friends work for big charities and they have a fairly good living on the back of people suffering, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm cynical about it. Right, so, not-for-profit, again, to some extent, we talked about this before, Stroke College is a not-for-profit organisation. Any money that Stroke makes, above and beyond what it gets, it has to plough back into the organisation. It cannot sit on a big bank account, although it is currently sitting on a big bank account, all its loans and things as well. Right, so charities, that if they make any profit, uh, they will be um, analysed by the government and they will be paying extra taxes against that because they're not making profit. Most private companies work with um, stakeholders. All of you, as we've said many times, are stakeholders. These are a range of people. 
our stakeholders internally for any organisation, be it public, private, SME or whatever. Right? You've got the people that own the company. A board of directors are generally people that don't belong to the company, but they, they are on a voluntary basis. They'll advise the company how to make the future better. And they make strategic decisions. So the board of directors at Stroke College will be saying, how do we make Stroke College good for the next 20 years? They don't care about the here and now, they care about the future. And the same for board of directors. Board of directors tend to be uh, people that drive the sort of innovation of companies. And if their company doesn't do very well, they'll get rid of those board of directors and get new ones in, because it's a voluntary basis. And they get paid a reasonable amount of money for that as well. You've then got the, the drones, the employees down at the bottom doing all the work. And then it's divided up into internal departments. You've got sales departments, marketing departments, admin departments, etc., research and development. What does it mean by end users? So these are people that have that have some stake in the company in, in that they get something out of the company. So I get paid as an employee, you'll get paid, you don't get paid, but you get a qualification out of it. Each department gets money to make the company work. The owners get some kickback if the company's doing quite well, and board directors will probably get some incentive if the company does quite well over the future times. They might say, if the company improves X percent, we'll give you Y percent in the future. So that drives them on. So in terms of end users, those are the people that benefit from those individual companies. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So those are inter that's the internal stakeholders externally. So those are the people that benefit inside a company internally. Outside of a company, the external people that benefit are obviously us, the people that buy the goods and services from the company. Those are the ones that benefit overall from the company itself. And we're all consumers of some description. Interesting, I think I said this the other day, I read a quite an interesting article about Google saying, Google, we are not the consumers of Google, we are the product, because they're selling us. Right? The more we use Google, the more valuable we are, we are as a product for them to sell to someone else, which I thought was quite interesting. So externally, we, are, we engage in professional services. This organisation uh, will employ, at the moment, have you all met Roger? Yeah. yeah. Roger obviously has replaced the manager that left. He's from an external agency called the AOC. Association of Colleges, and he's a specialist in doing various things, so he's brought in to run the department temporarily. We have uh, these professional services. We have, uh, some organisations will have a, a service that does the cleaning. If you leave in central London, where all the sort of businesses are, come five o'clock, the whole place is a ghost town, because everyone's left, and a big army of people come in to clean the offices. Right, they're all on contracts, very low contracts, professional services. So clients, are external people, people that get things from the company, and you might offer, again, in your world, once you're sort of working, you may be offering some of these services as to external clients, and your type of service, your professional service is going to be your consulting work in terms of support work. So you might go on site, you might be sent to a customer site, and the customer says, oh, you know, our desktop's really slow, what do we do about it, and we do some diagnostics, and like you're doing on your, well, most of you, uh, on your employee set project, you'll advise, having looked at your system, this is what I advise you to do, checks in the post, that type of thing. Right? So, professional services. So you're paid for your knowledge and your skills rather than doing things directly. Uh, external things in companies, they're direct in, indirect competitors. So, direct competitors to Apple, presumably now are these. They're going to take the market by storm. Blazing. Right, so most companies, most Products and companies will have competitors that are going head-to-head -head with them, but they might be indirect competitors that are taking away some of their other little market shares. So 
in terms, and I always, for this business stuff, the easiest thing to think about is your schools or colleges because you've had direct experience of it. So in terms of direct competitors to us, the college, I guess it's Yeovil and Bridgewater, I would do my guess, and indirect competitors might be if there's some sick form schools around here. The sick form schools are not directly trying to poach students like you to go to their college, but they're basically saying, don't leave school, stay on the sick form, don't go to that horrible place to go. So they're indirect. They're not, they're, not date, they're not going head to head against Strode, but they will be taking away Strode's in, income stream, all, all of you economic units that's in here. Says Bridgewater. Right, outsourcing. Very important. Most companies these days do outsourcing. Anyone know what that is? It's cheaper to pay other countries because they have lower minimum, rate, uh, minimum rates of pay. Yep. Again, the technology really drives this outsourcing thing. If you, uh, particularly the big suppliers like gas companies and those those types of things, uh, increasing there's a lot of pressure on on organisations to bring stuff back in house. But yeah, as Wolfie said, it's much cheaper to pay to pay for somebody in English speaking countries like India than it is would be to pay for them locally because the cost of living is much lower than it is here. So you don't have to pay as much for the same standard of living. So they get paid reasonably okay in their own countries but over here it just wouldn't be enough to live on so people outsource it and of course going back to the, the shareholders and people like that it gives them more money back in the company so and I've, I've seen some studies on this and you, you can look it up online but if you phone somebody up because of internet phone technology they've got one of these desktop internet phones and with a little LCD screen or colour screen your number pops up and it says this person's calling from street it pops up on their little screen with a little thing saying it's currently 15 degrees and it's sunny they pick up the phone oh Mr Taylor it looks nice in street today and you think Oh yeah, they must be around the corner. Yeah, yeah, it is good. Yeah, and it, it makes you at ease straight away. So outsourcing is quite valuable, I suppose. Uh, outsourcing suppliers. So the college here again, if you think about it in terms of the exam, they're gradually outsourcing stuff to the cloud. So Moodle was in house. It's now out external. It's it's getting better by the day. Um, and they've outsourced the firewall, all sorts of things. Now going bit by bit out to the cloud. All stuff internally, like the I think still internally is the. Um, the system that you track, the student 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 advantage thing you look at, that's all internal, I think. Albeit, it's contracted out. The database back end is outside, but we interact with it internally. I mentioned already shareholders. If you're a shareholder in a company, uh, you basically, you're basically buying an IOU for that company. You say, I will give you a thousand pounds, for example, in your company, but from that, I want whatever profits you've got above and beyond that. So you invest a thousand pounds, and you get two thousand pounds back over 10, 15 years. That's what shareholders do. Most companies cannot exist without shareholders. But they, it's very expensive to run big companies, um, and it's all it's all on paper. So you know that's if you buy a share in a company, you've got 15 shares, and each one's worth X amount of pounds. And if you look at the stock exchange, all that stuff that's going up and down, those are people buying and selling value within companies and making those companies more profitable or less profitable. Um, and I guess the classic example is um, Bitcoin. Bitcoin started out, nobody really knew what it was, didn't really mean anything. The value of it wasn't very very high. Bitcoin is now something like $100,000 per one. That's what it's gone crazy. It's gone up and down. Right, so people are buying into, it's about buying into the future. They're saying, I will give you money for your company currently to work properly, but in, a, in exchange, I want something back. And it may be a percentage, it may be a load of bits and pieces of money. Right, and then investors. People that put money into a company again in order to get some something back out of it, you might invest, you might not get anything for some years. The key thing about investment and shareholders is you've got to play the long game. 
Over time, you won't get a lot of value back, but generally, because obviously there was a massive stock market crash in 2008 and everyone lost m most things, but over time, the stock market does go up and up and up. And so people will invest in things in order to make, make some profit. At the moment, lots of people are investing in electric technology and things like that because they think that you know, eventually we're going to have to give up on fossil fuels and, and move towards electric stuff in a bigger way. Uh, funders, so again, in terms of, in, back in the good old days of university prior to 2005 or something like that, when I went to university, the government, my local government, the county I lived in, they gave me a grant, which I didn't have to pay back. They automatically paid the university for me to go there, then they gave me a load of money to go there and, and get drunk all the time. <laughs> now you have to pay for it, unfortunately, so you have to fund it yourself, whereas before it was funded by somebody else. But the funding is... <laughs> and it's incredibly expensive now. When I went to university, it was 60 pence a fine. Wow. But it was probably equivalent to what it is to right, So, funders are people that, that go to, they, they take their money and they'll invest it into some company or give it to some company. They may not necessarily want anything back from it. It depends on what they're up to. Right. And some of the funding then that goes into different organisations. We've obviously got organisations that are part of the wider structure, so the government is the biggest external thing that goes on. Within the, within the government, coming up in May, there are the local elections. If you vote in the local elections, you're making decisions about what goes on here within the street, within this postcode. You've then got national elections, uh, so that's deciding who's in charge in the government overall, so they're making the long-term decisions about how the country's going forward. The local elections are every, they, they stagger them, I think, they're every two years, something like that. The national elections, by law, at the moment, are every five years, unless the government of the day triggers a way to make it quicker. So if the government is currently doing quite well, and they, they, they can do a snap election, because they think they'll get voted back in, and that gives them another five years. And then international um, governments, again, lots of, the, lots of the stuff that went back into the Brexit was because people thought that we were being governed by Europe and they were pulling all the strings. Um, but there are, we've looked at this in a different context with laws. There are international laws that govern what we do and what we don't do. Hello, sorry. Can I bend the ear? Yeah, of course. What have we done? It's what I forgot to do. Because I'm useless like that. I want to see they're all being students for you because they're like a bunch of chimpanzees for me. Um, Friday, no, Thursday, next Thursday, 17th, uh, you're, you're invited to come out to Exeter to the UCAS. Uh, fair. Yes. Who signed up for that? Right. Just you two that haven't. No. If you're looking at doing anything to do with for more education, even if it's sort of a high-level apprenticeship, I would probably recommend you do come along. Um, I did send out the link to the stuff again. Can you make sure you, if you're going to go, you might want to just join your view. Yeah, yeah. Along. There is a health form that's been sent to you separately. Can you just fill it in? By Tuesday? Pardon? Tuesday, good? Um, oh, I don't know that. Good old head money, yeah. No, I don't know about that. Is, no, it, is it on email? Yeah. No. no. Is it not We've got printed. Right, okay. Uh, as soon as you can, yeah. Tuesday. Oh, it's early to be Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, they just get snippy when you turn from the coach and you're not here. I'm going. Who should I bring it to? Um, either me or Paul. Doesn't oh. matter. 
Yeah. Good, good to call. That will be on Tuesday. But I'll see you Thursday morning. Can't yeah. wait. Yeah. Exciting. We're going on a trip. Looking forward to seeing that. Who's going? Is it us? I'm going. And Me and you. That's. <laughs> <laughs> There's a safeguarding poster somewhere. Um, How should we address? The all seats. Pretty much every single first year T level student, digital T level student is going, apart from these two reprobates. First year. First year. From everyone. So no, year. no good for the second years because they've already done, done the university applications. They're, yes. They're accepting their places. <coughs> there will be some other people from the college, but I jumped in fairly early on this. And so because I'm all the places, so uh, you've got by far the most places in the college, so... Uh, because we're worth six and a half pounds. Exactly, yeah. Six and a half pounds? Six and a half grand. Is that what it is? That's why we're splashing up these. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> Treating ourselves, yeah. yeah. Right. Sorry about that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, can I get this thing out then? Oh, that was done with it. Yeah. yeah. It should be, I think. Can you check? <laughs> the, the, other group, the other group, uh, they just forged the branch signature. I did explain that was because of the shortness. That's what we're doing. <laughs> Normally, so do you want it now or should I get another one? <laughs> uh, you just put, you can put a signature on the bottom and just say you found your volunteer and it's okay. Yeah, my dad. <laughs> That's what I said. My dad. Yeah. I'm his dad. Louis Greedy. It is. <laughs> John and his past 12. <laughs> we get Bailey to be your guardian. I just say about international governments, obviously there's laws that govern things. Uh, some people abide by them, some companies don't. Uh, business environments. These, these three letter acronyms may or may not come up. Big things these days is B2B. Obviously that one time. Right. Yeah, I guess you deal directly with business. I'd say those are quite forward. I don't know how everyone feels about it. Everyone care that? Right, so that was 1.1. 1. 1. Key factors, good influence of business environments. Obviously political focus, political factors. At the moment, the government currently in place is very driven by political engagement. Lots of them have access to it. In fact, many of them are owners of companies. Uh, and they do that anyway. Um, so political factors can push things forward. At the moment, if you think about it, the both, both the political parties really hate each other, but they've come together to some extent on this Ukraine issue. So some things will drive them into this cross-party focus. If something is beneficial to everyone, then everyone will get involved in it politically. But political factors won't the business. The key political factor which will influence business, which every April you will hear about on the news, if you watch the news, is the budget. What is the tax base? How much tax am I having to pay? How will that affect my business, etc., etc. The only thing I ever watch on April is how much more money they're going to put on beer tax. The important stuff. Nobody else cares about the rest of it. Economic factors. Everyone knows, so interest rates at the moment uh, are relatively low because of the pandemic and various other factors. Basically, it kicked in some years ago and it hasn't gone beyond that. So the interest rates at the moment, so if you borrow money from the bank, you pay back at the moment 0.5% interest, which is pretty manageable. However, when I was your age, interest rates were 15%. So if you borrowed a thousand pounds over a series of years, you pay back about four or five thousand because the interest rate was really high. Now, this is a big factor in terms of um, if you've got, if you buy a car, and you buy it on an interest rate, which is fairly low, every three years it's reassessed. And if it goes up, 
three or four percent, it becomes almost like unpayable. So again, these things are quite important. And that's going to affect business. If interest rates go up, it means people have got less money in their pocket and they're not going to buy your goods. Consumer trends, obviously people go after stuff all the time. Um, you know, when the new Apple products come out, everyone buys them for a little while and then it sort of dies off a little bit. Um, and then recession. We're not currently in a period of recession, uh, although we did get hit quite hard by the pandemic. A recession is when the country's not making enough money to go forward and, and pay people's wages and stuff like that. Russia. Uh, recession will hit now because the cost of living is going to increase rapidly. We currently are quite dependent on loads of things like gas and oil from Russia, and if they if they pull the pipeline off, then all of that cost already, I don't know if you've noticed, I certainly have, yes. petrol has gone up 10 pence already, it's set to go up even more. Now even worse than that in terms of recession, which could hit all of us, is the gas and oil electricity, obviously they need oil and gas to make electricity, so the gas and electricity at your home is currently, it went up, it almost doubled uh, in the last few months, it's going to double again. Now I read some on somebody on Twitter said that somebody said that they got a letter from the electric company that their current bill was a hundred and ninety pounds a month for gas and electric. So it's a big house. It was going to go up to seven hundred pounds a month by the end of the year. Now seven hundred pounds a month is almost impossible for most people to find. But for so that's going to hit all of us hard, mm. and that's guaranteed at the moment unless something's done about it. So recession, and that will lead to recession means people can't buy stuff because they've got no money left. It's already quite bad, so that's going to be. Uh, one to watch, I suppose. Uh, social factors, social mobility, um, these are more about the, how people can move through the system. Can people actually get, everyone knows social mobility, do that in other subjects? Yeah, English. The classic example, looking at Lewis Flag, is the, the American dream. Everyone in America believes that they'll, they'll end up being president. Right? They just have to work hard. And the reality is, very few people get that. They just work hard and die. I will get that. I'm going to get that. So social mobility means you're born into a fairly poor household, you end up being incredibly rich. So working out through the ranks. Getting as rich as possible. So all he cares about, doesn't care about the learning or anything. Social mobility. And again, different societies have ability. Can you move up through the ranks or down through the ranks? Is the mobility, can you get beyond where you currently are? In, and again, this is quite interesting, Again, fairly recently, um, my generation, we were ultimately expected to be, get beyond our parents, and most people in my boomer generation did that. You're the first generation where that's unlikely. You're unlikely to move beyond your parents because of the various other factors about recession. Fuck's sake, like put in the bin. That's a bit of a problem. Uh, market trends, we talked about that yesterday, didn't we? What stuff's happening in the market? Companies will look for market trends and say, actually, loads of people are buying 3D printers. Let's get in on that and let's set up a company selling 3D printers. Uh, most people's market trends, I suppose, is you whoever know, wants to be a, a YouTube millionaire. Other things. Quite Cultural expectations. So what people think the culture should do and how business trends move based on what people feel. Cultural expectations do change and, and dynamics change within the culture itself. Um, and I guess people buy things based on what they're doing. And, and to think of an example, um, my wife and I have been married 20 years. When we first got married, very few people knew anything about Japan, no interest in the place whatsoever, wouldn't touch the food for life or money. Now, most people I talk to now have eat, eat sushi, like going out to Japanese restaurants, watch anime, all sorts of things. So cultural expectations have changed. In the old days, people wouldn't, wouldn't have done it. And again, there, there's a historical precedent, I suppose. Some people historically uh, particularly people that have any 
associated with the Second World War don't like Japanese people because they were quite nasty during the war, ticking in the camps that they had, because it was a cultural thing. In Japan, it's an embarrassment if you get captured and you should be punished for it, so that's why they treated prisoners badly. Socioeconomic aspects, so society, money, etc., etc. Socioeconomically, um, I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, in terms of pension, we currently have the lowest pension rate in Europe. Not that you matter, care about it now, but when you do retire, it's going to be a bit tricky, isn't it? Something you need to think about. And again, in order to do that, so socioeconomically, we don't have a very good pension, which means you need to put it into a private scheme, otherwise, you're not going to have any money when you grow old enough to retire, should that happen. And social aspects as well, expectations. Again, just not that long ago, your retirement age was 60, it's now 67. People are living longer, so it may be by the time you retire, it could be 75. So you have to work a long, long time. But you're going to be fitter anyway, so it shouldn't matter. Perhaps. Technological factors. We did this, this is a completely separate section, so emerging technologies, we looked at VR and all this other stuff. What other kind of emerging technologies are coming out? I mentioned about the, again, there is a good book in the library we've got, which is, talks about all this stuff. The, obviously, we've got loads of robotics and stuff like that coming out. Um, faster and faster internet connectivity. In terms of, going back to cultural expectations and changes in trends, as I said the other day, if you go onto any high street in a small town now, you won't see many shops all boarded up. They're all charity shops or things like that. People don't go out shopping anymore. Most pubs are dying off because people don't go out to pubs. I mean, that died off a little bit when, when smoking was banned, but pubs being the centre of any cultural organisation seems to be dissipating. So that's something that's changing. And technology is emerging to actually fit that, aren't they? The biggest companies in the world don't actually do anything. Google doesn't actually sell anything, does it? It, it sells advertising, so it doesn't make anything particularly. So big changes in cultural, social, economic, etc. Uh, changes in legal factors. Um, we looked at that yesterday, didn't we? I can skip over that one, we looked at the law in a bit more detail. And environmental factors, we've all got a carbon footprint. If you drive a car a lot, obviously your carbon footprint's higher. It's the use and dissemination of carbon-based products. Every single thing uh, that is plastic, which obviously takes up a lot of bits and pieces, pl plastic is made from petrol or from oil, isn't it? So again, that's a big carbon footprint. And digital waste, there is a law which governs this stuff, the I, uh, the WE directive, the Waste Electrical Equipment, uh, something or other. Um, but it is a problem. Lots of countries now, lots of emerging countries or developing nations, they're basically getting all of our waste. Because the government are fairly corrupt, we just say, can you take all this digital crap that we don't want? And they say, you'll take it if you pay us a little bit of money. But what do we do with it all, all this digital waste? There's more and more of it being created. And again, it's being driven quickly these days. Again, going back, things like fridges used to be really robust and well-made. They'd last 20, 30 years. Now they last three or four years, and you have to buy a new one. You've got to get rid of that old one, and it's full of all sorts of nasty chemicals. Um, but you think about all the phones now. I think every, pretty much everyone in the world has a mobile phone. That's billions and billions of electronic devices, and when it goes, where do they put them all? So it could be some questions along the lines of some factors that are affecting business, and so those are the things to look at. Uh, 1.3, measurable value of digitalization to a business. So this is looking at what can you make a business better? And this goes back into your employer set project, most of you, not Lillian, Alex, to some extent. So how can digital technology be used to improve these different departments within a business? Do I need to go through this? 
Skip, I'm not skipping them, sorry. Sure. Okay, everyone. Mm -hmm. Sales marketing, so think about the different software you can use, the hardware, the different analytical tools. Again, this ties in with other sections about the digital sort of data you can use. E-commerce, there'll be questions about that, and uh, probably, and then digital analytics. So again, some of these things come up in other areas. So that's sales and marketing, that's making sure people know what your products are and how to get them out there. So it's web-based technology, social media, and all the things that support those digitally. Then we've got the operations within an organisation. How, how can those be made better digitally? Well, again, these, because of the speed of things now, I mentioned yesterday there was in the news, there's four or five cities in the UK which are actually putting up um, a, a G5 device on every single lamppost. Or 5G, not G5. 5G device on every single lamppost in the city. It's going to track, interact with all sorts of things. So you, if you've got one of these smart watches or your smartphone, as you walk through a city, if you get the app, it will tell you what the pollution levels are, what the sort of congestion are, what's going on in terms of what the temperature is, what the, what the ozone layer is, all those types of things. All that data will be given to you in your smart city so you can keep informed. And that can only happen if we've got really fast communication on all these interactive devices. And remote working, I, I, that's almost certain to come up on the exam because it's a big thing at the moment. Right? Increasingly, why would you commute for five hours a day if you just sit at home with your pants? with a suit on top. Yeah. Who wouldn't do that? I didn't do it. What did I do? Finance. So again, using digital technology improves finance. One of the classic examples, and again, you've got to think about what, what the good and the bad of this is. The good thing about it is, in terms of finance, they turned all these algorithms onto the, um, the stock exchange, and, and it went, Great, they make all this money. The algorithm could make decisions on trends in the actual market in an instant and make loads of money. Now, in, in the marketplace, on stocks and shares, if the stock goes up half a pence and you've got a billion of them, that's a lot of money going up and down. Yep. However, it could go a bit too loud. So that this, this algorithm that's running on the stock exchange started picking up a negative trend and started selling and selling, and everyone panicked and started selling, and they lost billions and billions of pounds before they switched the thing off. Again, good bad. Finance. But if you think about it, a machine can make decisions really quickly. Yes, you've got the expertise to be a hedge fund manager and look for certain patterns, but the machine can pick it up in an instant and make huge amounts of money for you. And it's cheaper to do that. One key thing might come up is these KPIs, K performance indicators. What do you know, how do you know that your company is effective? You set yourself some measurable targets and you achieve those. So what might the key performance indicators for for us, or for me, is how many of you achieve your target grades, like your legs. Everyone know how those are determined? Does that go through for you? All that malarkey? Right. Based, on, based on the number of grades that you get coming into the college and the average of them, that determines roughly what, what grade of A level you're likely to get. And that's what's going to be your meg. If you get the thoughts going on. Could you give us some examples Statistically, that works. of KPIs in a business? KPIs the business might be, you might set yourself target group. So in, in five years' time, we want three million more customers, for example. Now, you may not reach that, but that would be one of your indicators to say, did the plans that we put in place to make three million more customers work? Well, we got two and a half million, so we're not far off. So what went well, what didn't? Let's adjust it slightly and make another five-year plan. And our next performance indicator will be four million customers or something. Okay. So an indicator of have you reached the targets in performance could it be money-based, or you might say my key performance indicator is I can make that device 3% less time in order to make it so I can chuck more out the door. So those are the type of indicators 
measurable targets, measurable things that you can say either more money, less time making it, less product uh, sort of disturbance. Some KPIs might be less waste. If you ever watch those TV shows about how stuff's made, I was watching one the other night on uh, Jammy Dodgers, and they've got X percentage of stuff that just, just gets clipped up on the conveyor belt, so they have to throw it away. So their KPI might be, let's reduce our waste of these Jammy Dodgers to 0.003% rather than 0.005. It's little things like that make a huge difference in a big company. Right, so that's 1.3. 1 1.4. Not in. 1.4, the influence and impact of digitalization within business context and market environment. Brand differentiation. What is the difference between Coke and Pepsi? Which is the best one? Pepsi. Pepsi. Me, Pepsi. Pepsi. Full fat Coke. Yeah. Pepsi, Diet, uh, Pepsi Zero. Oh. Pepsi, oh, was it Pepsi Max? Sorry. Yeah, but Pepsi the brand is, you will, the ultimate brand, as I think I mentioned this before, the ultimate in brand is to get to, some, get to the point where people don't even talk about the thing, they talk about your product. The classic example, way beyond your time frame, is Hoover. Thank you. Hoover. Hoover was a company yeah, in America that made vacuum cleaners. They said, oh, I want my Hoover. No, no, it's a vacuum cleaner. They make washing cleaner. machines. They do make lots of other but that's what they got. Is it trampoline? Same thing,
What is the unique selling point of grapes? Sausage rolls. Sausage rolls, is it? Vegan. Recently, they're big, yeah, they're vegan. Yeah. Yeah. Recently, yeah. they make them fairly big in the marketplace, yeah. aren't they? Blue sausage rolls. Blue sausage rolls. Unique selling point yeah. of Vicky D's. Um, Golden arches. Uh, anything that's got the word muck in front of it, I guess. Muck nuggets, muck. Most organisations will have something that is unique against their competition. Most burger joints, or most, they cannot compete because of copyright and all other things with McDonald's to that degree. Because, because going back to brand, <laughs> you recognise that brand and you know that's trust. And if you if you have travelled anywhere in the world, you'll know that those things taste exactly the same wherever you go. There's no different. What? <laughs> Processing business models, digital manufacturing. Right. Increasingly, the, the the big idea, I suppose, is that people think that everyone in, the, in their home can have a three D printer and make anything they need. That's the sort of utopian ideal, isn't it? Digital manufacturing. You can make if you need something at home, rather than go out and buy it and re, and make loads of digital waste, just get your three D printer out and just print it off. Right. And that's the and that's where digital printing, three D printing, is supposed to be heading. Supposedly. And having said that, you know, if everyone's got and there are non non plastic uh, things for 3D printers as well. And there are 3D printers that make food as well, yeah. though. Me so, printing my shopping list. Well, these are plant proteins or something. Yeah, swapping along those lines. Okay, just spraying it onto a form and then drying it off. Uh, financial processing business models. Again, so having machines to do this for you rather than relying on third party companies and then research. So these are different business models. This is how technology is making these business models more effective, more quickly, and the digital side of things. In terms of digital research, again, it would have taken a lot of people, a lot of time and effort to do research all over the place. So they may not have been able to get material from different countries to do those cross-dialogue cross or cross-checks of different um, data sets. Now, you can actually buy time on these supercomputers and you can sort of number crunch whatever you want all from all over the world, and stuff comes out really quickly. Most of the stuff, and again, like, you know, go back in the day, if, if Louis had asked me to get an American flag 20 years ago, I'd have no chance. But it's easy to get, call somebody up and within a couple of days it arrives. So things have moved really quickly on that front. Wider access to, to customer base, again, so online, digital stuff. If I'm a travelling salesperson, laptop, into the cloud, into the database, pick up all this data, I'm never without the data in front of me anymore. So the customer base is accessible to me everywhere. Uh, and frank range of products and services is much broader because you can make so many different things these days. And it's almost too much, I think. If you think about it in terms of, I think like the, the year two students were making, we were doing a practice-based database or a website on making, like setting up a company to sell trainers. And there's so much. One of the websites, Nightwood, it was about 50,000 clients. Ridiculous amount. But people want to be different, don't they, I suppose? Contextualizing customer behavior. This is, most companies do a digital uh, persona. If I'm making a new product, I will get loads of different data about all sorts of different people, and I try to get a rough picture about what my target audience is. And I'll come up with this sort of conglomerate person that is this age, this background, this interest set, etc., etc. And they'll use that digital personalization. And they'll, it's accurate enough that they can start pushing up products knowing that people roughly in that that look like that made up person will start buying that stuff. Right? So these personalizations uh, um, help people get to buy the products. 
And I guess personalization is, I, mean, I told you about the extreme case that people are worried about, particularly in, in the States at the moment, is, is the States, in, the States laws are a bit softer. So they're saying they've got some developers in the States that are, are making it so that without you knowing, they will be switching on your phone and they'll be then pushing ads on your phone or your tablet, and they'll be looking at your facial expressions, and an algorithm will say, oh, they, they really like that, let's keep more of that stuff. That's the next phase of um, um, digital personalization. At the moment, if you start looking at, if you start looking at stuff on YouTube, over a while, the, the adverts, if you've got adverts, I don't, will pop up related to what you're looking at, but the next phase is to look at your facial expressions through your camera, without you knowing, and then push really precise stuff. So you'll be looking at your phone, and, and stuff will come through, visual you've had four or five sort of raised eyebrows and it will just, wow, that's good, and you'll buy stuff, that's the intention. Uh, platform interoperability is getting much better because of digitalization. Again, we talked about this. If, if I send you an email from my, my Linux phone onto your new phone, it will still come through regardless of what the operating system is because of standards and platform interoperability. You don't want to be doing, again, uh, we work with Steam Deck, you know, link it to all sorts of different things, it'll play out on TVs, all these things will happen. And obviously, looking at across the corner of the room, open standards make all this stuff work. Uh, Non-platform specific digital identities. Again, the, the idea, I suppose, in terms of digital stuff is that you move around. And if you've got these these open standards, like for two-way authentication, all that sort of stuff, you shouldn't have to be dependent on carrying a device around to do stuff. And again, that's restrictive. So if you go into, if you travel abroad or whatever, you, you don't want to take your phone with you. You should be able to go to any place and, and log into a computer and use it because you've got access to things through your digital identity. Now, at the moment, the government are talking about taking that one step further and making them carry around a digital identity card. Some countries are experimenting with digital tags underneath your skin. Seems sinister, but no. Obviously, cats and dogs will tag, aren't they, in the country? Well, that's the thing is that there's people online that have tried deadass. Just um, um, they've tried it like with um, little NFC tags mm. just underneath like skin hair, right? And they've got a little scarf, obviously, for one they put it in, but essentially they use it for, and because it's just a rewrite, mm. you yeah, the phone you can just rewrite it to whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, but so that um, a lot of them have it so that it could, they can unlock their door. So if they've got a specific uh, like a Tesla or something like that. They can just use that. They've got that set up as their key, so they just put their hand on the door cool, to open so nice. it instead of having to use <laughs> their key on their phone or something, or like in the house and stuff. But it's like you have stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah. Hand. Yeah. Exactly, walking around. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. I mean, you it's can cool. do that here as well. I mean, yeah, you could do that here, but that's the thing. You could use that here. You could, instead of having one of these, you just have it palm your hand. Yeah, the technology. Yeah. I guess you could have some QR tag. Yeah, exactly. Okay, non-platform specific, just makes it more flexible. Yeah, that's good. But that's like the thing, that's so you could just get a QR thing tattooed to you, right? I'm sure you had like a permanent way, right? But if you did, you could then choose to have what that QR code was, and provided that the systems don't change, your QR code is still going to be valid in like several years. Like, I think like, the downside to that is like with a password, you can change it now. Yeah, exactly. That's something fun. Well, okay. That's something that yeah, gets your hand. Everyone clear on that one? Yeah, but this is
that it would end the sort of layer. We're doing well, aren't we? Half an hour. Yeah. Half an hour. Yeah. Yeah. What would happen, actually, what will happen come September when we have a totally new person in charge of this place? Right? They can either come in, they can either come in really heavy-handed and just totally radically change everything and just hope it all settles down, or they could slowly change it. So how, when you come into an organisation, do you change things? Can you use technology to make those changes better? One example, I guess, in, in terms of the college is currently using Moodle predominantly, but they're trying to move over to a sort of a Windows-specific Okay, you have to go in terms of your task three at the moment, a Windows-specific environment, so they're trying to push people to get into Teams more than using Zoom and various other things, right? Zoom was used during lockdown because it was free, but come July, Zoom is not going to be free, so we're trying to push towards Teams. So innovations with digital technology, so all of that stuff, you think about Office 365, if you look on the side panel of it, there's all sorts of little options you've got. They've got tie-ins with Yammer and all sorts of chat bots and all sorts of things. So. Will that change things in terms of change management? Can you make the job more productive and, and easier for people by building in these tools? Um, you've got to then bring people along with you, so communicating the rationale. So why are we changing this way? Why are we, why are we scrapping all the Moodle stuff and bringing in Teams? Well, because it's, it ties in with the office and the Outlook and makes all that stuff work more effectively together. And if move into the Outlook completely and, and the Office 365 space, we're into the cloud completely and then nothing inside the college is reliant on that technology anymore. So that's the long-term goal, isn't it? You've got to then communicate what the benefits are for change management. So if we go this way, you know, you're going to get a much better experience. That would be things. If you're working in a support environment, they'll say, we're moving away from this current database system we've got to this really fancy one, these, this, this company... Louis and Alex made for us. Yeah, it's much smoother, it's much more effective the way it works. It's got a nice business intelligence interface on the front. Right, so benefits of the change, that's why we're changing. I know it's going to be painful, guys, but let's move that way anyway, because it's going to be better for you. So you have to try to communicate that idea. Um, and then getting buy-in from the areas, so all the different things. So if you might have people that are in, in the supply chain, so we're, we're changing over, so you're going to have to buy slightly different products for us, but we will keep you on board. It will still give you business, and eventually you'll get more business. It's going to be painful to begin with, but over the long term. So those are the types of messaging you do to try to get people to come along with this change with you. So that's in the planning stages. And then in the operational stage, how you get this stuff out the door into the customers. Um, new upgraded to uh, tools, current digital ecosystem. So in terms of the college, it's delivering this stuff to people. Um, again, in terms of... In terms of pain that I've experienced just recently, because of the there's some change in the in the security settings, because the college runs on a platform which is based on an organisation called JISC, which looks after all FE colleges and universities. They recently changed their um, requirements in terms of security, saying that nobody could use these facilities because of data protection laws outside of college facilities or with college devices. So I, at home, I have to use a college laptop in order to access college systems. I didn't have to before, but now I do. So again, in terms of digital ecosystem, if you make these changes in terms of improving operations, you have to say, well, it's, it's, made, it's for security, it's going to make things better. 
Uh, establishing best practice. Best practice is making sure things work better. Constant upgrading, not always the best thing, is it? Yeah. Is it always good? Upgrading to, to 11, that was that a pain-free experience? No. Yeah. <laughs> if you're an early adopter, though, yeah, probably it's quite painful. But if you wait, that's a different thing, isn't it? Most people, yeah. you get, most of you in here probably are early adopters, you'll grab onto stuff as soon as it happens, you'll, you'll go through the pain, right. but you'll get the benefits. A lot of people will wait. Organisations aren't early adopters. They're not going to change their system radically just because somebody says it's a great new thing coming out. So, Again, and sometimes they can't. Again, we talked about the NHS. Most systems in the NHS are Windows 7 or Windows XP even, because they can't afford to upgrade it, and, they, and they, the, the stuff just works. In the workshop downstairs, one of the lathes downstairs runs on Windows XP, and the company that makes the lathe, they've made newer versions of the lathe, but they haven't upgraded the operating system, so it won't run with anything newer than XP. So we were scratching around there trying to find XP to, to reinstall our computer. Now, once that disappears, You've got this very expensive lathe that won't work with anything except XP. So again, these upgraded tool processes, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, facilitating processes and business models. The processes are the way that people do things. And again, this is about change management. How do you make people do things differently when they've done it? Oh, I've, I've done that for 20 years. Why do I need to change? One of my classics was moving into one school I was teaching at. I was trying to teach people how to use Moodle to move stuff online. And I had an art teacher shouting in my face, why are you making me do this? I just don't need it. Very angry. Right, process of business models. You may change the business model. You might say we're moving towards an all digital model. Uh, we're taking away all the paper. Everyone's going for these paperless offices. So all of those are changes to the way the dynamic and the, the system works. And it's not always something that people are agreed to do. Um, again, think about lots of... It's not currently happening, but lots of doctor surgeries. A few years ago, there was a big plan to make all of the doctor surgeries on one central database. And it went years and years and loads of money trying to make it work, and it never worked. But it's very difficult. It, ideally, if you think about it, you should be able to travel anywhere in the country, and if you're ill, go to local doctors, and they pull up all your records. All oh, right, so reinfluoration of that thing you had when you were five years old. But there isn't such a thing at the moment. It's all disjointed. And going back to the beginning, that's because the doctors, doctor surgeries are actually private companies. They're not. They they buy services and sell stuff to the NHS, but they're not part of it. And finally, in change management, once you've done all these pain points, once you've made all it work, how do you put those fixes in place and make them stick? Now, presumably, it's not not in this bullet point, but. To apply the fixes, you might say, well, do I survey people? Do I question them? Make sure that everyone's on board? You know, how much dialogue are you going to have with people? Then at some point, again, at some point in your lives, you're going to be management. You know, do you say, if, if half of your team don't want it, how do you make you get on board to make sure they accept it? Because that's what you decided to do. Right, and change management could, like, like I say, come September, it could be some radical changes, or it could be very similar to what it is at the moment. We don't know. But that's, that will be change management. So change management is how you make the organisation go forward, how you make the pain points go away, how you explain it to people, how you communicate why, why you're doing it, and what the benefits are and possible side you know, non-benefits. So management's changing here in September? The, yeah, the principles being changed in September. Okay. I think you should take over. We'll make a petition. I've had that, had that fun before. Right, everyone are clear on that, so that change management? Everyone know what that is? Yep. Yeah. Right. Right. Change sure. Things.
change management. The components of technical change management, right? So that's the, the organizational ideas, how you communicate people, how you get bring them along, get them a headlock and pull them along the way you want, etc. This is then some of the actual process in a little bit more detail. So in order to do, and this is for really big companies, if you'd set up this change advisory board, you'd have some specialised people come in and they'd go around talking to it. So again, if you thought about it in terms of the college, for argument's sake, if it was functioning that way, you would have people coming around, sitting down, and you say, look guys, it's going to be a big change in September, you okay with that? This is what's going to change, this is what's going to change. Give us your feedback and we'll, we'll try and work with you. That would be a change advisory board. And again, if you think about a really big company like if Google, if the, the, uh, Sergey Brin and whatever decided to step down, they'd have to have this massive cultural change, I would imagine, in Google. It happened when Steve Jobs died at Apple, didn't it? Everyone, oh, who's going to take over? What? Where's it going to go? Are they going to be the same company anymore? So the change advisory board means they have to check with all the employees if that's okay. Yeah, they check with the, the senior management, middle management, people on the floor. Yeah, to just to just make sure everyone is happy with it. And if it's a really big organisation, you're going to have, you're going to have to go across countries and sort of things. Is everyone happy on, on board? Now, the reason you would do that is if people aren't happy, they're going to cause a lot of disruption, and that's what you don't want, because the company then is going to really struggle in order to perform it. All right, so the Change Advisory Board goes out and talks to people, makes notes, does some research, does all sorts of things. So they then get a list of things that they've picked up by talking to all the employees, and they then prioritise it. So, okay, we, we talked to all the employees and the managers and everything. They said, yeah, okay with this stuff, but this stuff will have to wait because it's too disruptive. So push that to the back. So you make some priorities. You know, these requests, we have to do them, no matter what. The other ones, we could probably wait a little while. Uh, they then, so once they prioritise prioritize it, they then kick it into place, then maybe every month or a quarter or six months they'll say, okay, what's working? They'll do a review process. What, what's worked and what hasn't worked in this process and what can we do differently? Yeah. So change requests and they'll review it. They'll monitor whether those, those things made any difference whatsoever. If they need to be reeled back or changed or modified or if they're okay to carry on. Yeah. And then they'll feed back to the actual chief executives and say, Yep, everything seems to be going okay, we're well on time, uh, we don't need to be around anymore, your company seems to be happy with what's happening. Right, so that change advisory process, going through that review process and making settings and actually double back in and feedback on it, did it work, are we okay, shall we move on, can we leave now? If within that process then uh, there is some request for change, so if, if within that process loop the change advisory board, they do get some requests for change, and they'll say, okay, they'll have to do a viability study. Half of, the, half of the staff said, can you make this change? We're not happy with the change in this particular area. What can we do to fix it? The change advisory board will say, well, what is the viability? Can we afford it? And do we have the resources, the staff, the specialised staff or equipment to make it happen? Right, so a viability, if you can't meet those criteria, if it's too expensive and too difficult, then it won't happen. And some other plan will have to come up. Right, so requesting for change, within that, then is it viable? Is it cost effective? Is it a resource you can do with? Then analyze the benefits. If we do, if we do find the money, if we go out onto the marketplace and borrow money to make this happen, is it worth it? Right? We analyze the benefits. If, it's gonna, if our KPIs are gonna go up 30%, yeah, that's probably well worth it. But if not, let's, let's find another plan. So again, it's this process going on and on, making sure the company's going to change. And then 
there's going to be stages of approval. So each bit of these little incremental changes, at each stage, you'll get sign-off. Everyone happy with this? Yes. 5% still not happy, but that's enough. 15% not happy. Let's go back and review it and let's try and fix it. Okay. Yep, everyone clear on that? Um, is anyone, if you've done IT at any stage in the last few years, we've come up with these smart targets. Yep. Everyone yeah. clear on those? Yeah. Yep. And you might, you might come up with a question what are the five best aspects of a smart target? What do the letters mean? Everyone okay on that? Smart, mm. you've probably done that loads of times, haven't Has been yes, good. No? Yeah. Uh, and then risks. Everything in, is involved in risk. Then all of you are some sort of risk in taking this. None of this is real. Wave it all up. So it's all fake. It. High risk is worth the other. Resistance to change. You will always get resistance. I mentioned about the person at my old school that shouted in my face, "I'm not using a VLE." No matter what, well, people don't want change. Change isn't very good for most people. It's very uncomfortable. Particularly digital change. Again, things are getting better, but there's 11 million people in the UK. The government said that do not are not comfortable with computers in any shape or form. Right? Don't have switches on. Don't use them. Don't want to use them. That's a big number. A population of about 70 million. That's only 10% of people. 15% don't want to do it. Uh, so there's going to be resistance no matter what you do. And again, as managers, at some point you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to force people down this route for the benefit of your company, if it's your company you're running. Um, there will be problems. Some risk is you implement these new tools. You, you go, you sweep through Stroke College, and you replace all these Windows desktops with a much better one from Linux. Yeah. There's going to be some misuse. People are going to be abusing stuff. They might have permissions they didn't have before, and they're deleting files off the server and all sorts. So there will be problems in the processes. And people, because they're used to other processes, may be doing it wrong and filing stuff in the wrong place. So there's going to be some pain. Um, if you don't have the adequate support for people, if you haven't shown them how to do stuff properly, uh, you haven't put the infrastructure in place, so, you know, like storage and resources and, and trained staff, they will be problems. Uh, there's then going to be change, installing and repeating workflows. Workflow in an organisation is you go in, you hand a piece of document to somebody, they take it to somebody else, they file it, they print it on something, blah, blah, blah. So those, those workflows established over time become really efficient. If you suddenly chuck all this new stuff in the middle of it, People don't know where to go to drop off the files. They don't know where to store their data. They don't know where to go and get certain data. Um, and that's, that's quite difficult, isn't it? I, I think at the moment, college is changing over to some slightly different systems for student monitoring, and most of us can't find where it is. Don't know where to store stuff, etc. And then knowledge management. There are certain people within organisations over time that become incredibly important and valuable because they know where everything is, they know where the skeletons are buried and all that stuff. If they leave, they take a lot of that knowledge with them. One of the key things is for companies is companies have to train people into certain skills. Like when you, you lot, when you go to work for, a, for a technical companies, chances are in order to make the company work, they will give you some really good skill training. They might teach you how to do databases or you know, some high level structural um, cloud-based infrastructure stuff because they have to to make the company work. But that makes you very valuable to someone else. And the competition's quite fierce. You go down the road and get a better job with more money. But that's a risk they have to take. So knowledge management, single source of dependency. Um, if, if the person in, in the college that is the only one that knows how the student database works suddenly up and leaves, the college is in a real problem. 
right? So single source dependency, the, la the last thing you don't want to do is have people that are the only one in the world that can do that. Right? They're very valuable, but it means very difficult if you don't place it. So a lot of companies will do a rotational thing within an organization. They'll put you on, if you're in a big company doing technical support, you might do your support of Windows one week, Mac the next week, etc. And they'll move you around so that you don't become specialized in any one particular area. So if you do go, you're easily replaced. And then overall, the impact, this is about still change management. What's some of the impact of this stuff? Um, obviously, you'll do impact studies. You'll measure what kind of change implementation, what effect it's had on the overall operations. So what's it done to the company? And that's coming back to these KPIs and various analytical measures. Is the company less productive? Are people uh, not doing their job as well? And again, depending on how much the company monitors what you're up to, lots of companies these days will actually have stuff monitoring what you're doing online all the time. So all the time you're on your desktop, they'll know what you're up to. I mean, if the extreme case or something like that, or the best, best example of that is, I said yesterday, I think, uh, lorry drivers have a tachometer inside their cab, and all the time they're driving, it's ticking away the hours, and when they stop, it stops, and when they drive again. And by law, they cannot drive more than eight hours. So if they get to eight hours, they've got to pull over to, to lay by and go to sleep. Because by law, they break the law if they don't. And that's to, to protect all of us, because if they've been driving for 15 hours, they're really tired, they're going to be crashing across the motorways and things. Right, so forecasting what the change has done, what, what has it made to the company? If, if this organisation does a study over the next you know, six months after September, they might say, well, they might do a student survey, say, are the students happy, are the staff happy with these new changes that happened to the college? Is everything working okay? And obviously, it's no good just looking for the good stuff. Yeah, that will make things look really good. You've got to look for the bad stuff as well. So what is the negative impact? What, what, what are people really upset about and what cannot work anymore because of the changes you've made? And once you've measured those, then you analyse it. Can you improve things? If there are loads and loads of negative problems, can you eliminate those or at least mitigate them a little bit? Or if they're positive things, can you increase them? Because obviously that's going to make things a lot better. Um, configuration of digital systems, so what is the current system and how do you propose to fix it? That goes back into your employer set project. That second task, you interview the tech network manager, you said what are all the problems, you then come up with a solution, say this is what I'd recommend over the next 10 years to make you the best company industry, or whatever it might be. So what is currently happening and what do you propose to change it in terms to minimise risk? Because there's always risk, you tend to have one of these rollback things, uh, failover system. If a server fails, generally you'll have a server backup that will go on and place them. And depending on how much money you've got, will be how quickly you can do that. If you pay for a really decent sort of cloud-based service, there'll be 15 versions of your system anywhere, and any one of them fails, it'll instantly switch over without you noticing. If you've got a, a traditional server and it fails, you've got quite a lot of downtime before they replicate it and put it up on the system and do all the backups onto it. And that stuff, if you've got, if you've got uh, your home server, no matter how quick your network is, if you've got two or three terabytes of space, that takes a long time to back up and, re and re move on to another system. Even if it's hard drive to hard drive, the fastest hard drives are, what, 300 megabits a second or something. It's still going to take hours and hours to do a few terabytes of stuff. Again, if it's a company that's losing business because the website's off, that's problematic. So what kind of backups do you use in terms of rollback? A lot of people use tape-based backups still because it's very reliable. It's slow, but it's very dependable. Very rarely does it break down. Um, 
And it's all very well having loads of you know, fast hard drives, but if they fail for any reason and you've got nothing behind them, then that's problematic. So companies will have two or three different versions of backups, hopefully. In terms of, again, I don't know how you do this at home, but you'll have local backup on your machine, and increasingly you'll, you'll put stuff in the cloud. Most people have Dropbox or Google, Google Box or whatever to store stuff. Uh, in the college system, obviously when you log on to your machine, you're storing stuff locally, but you've also got the cloud-based uh, OneDrive system as well. Um, so various ways of doing that. But, you know, the best will in the world, there will be a disaster at some point. Um, and at that point, what do you do? Most, most internet service providers tend to have mirrored data centers. Some are quite close, but again, data centers need something at least two or three kilometers away, because if there's a lightning strike or a flood, hopefully the other data center, which is mirrored, will be back up and running very quickly. That's right, so a disaster recovery. And if you go to, and if we get Steve to come, we can ask what the data disaster recovery plan is for Stroke College. He should have one. And it should be quite detailed and uh, comprehensive. Reducibility. So some of these terms might come up on the exam, I suppose. So the ability to get back to where you were. Right? If we do, if you might, and again, it depends how the company does this, it might do it blow by blow. It might take the admin department and make all these changes and see what all the pain is. It will then take it and dump it onto the sales department. And bit by bit, it'll work through the organisation. That way it's a bit more manageable. So that's rep replicating some sort of change. So what's okay in admin, let's try it in sales and marketing and see how they get on. That's obviously a slightly different way they do things, but that would work. Uh, and then most things will have a test environment, a sandbox as it's called. Yeah. So if, you, if you're developing a website or a web service or something like that, you wouldn't be dumping live code up, all these bugs and things onto the site and wait for all the angry customers. You'll have a sandbox, which is an exact replica. You'll test it all up on that over and over again. And when there's no more problems, then you'll dump it up to the live site. Right? That serves as a software. Again, generally, what, by the time you get a piece of code, it should be reasonably well done. But no code is perfect. It's very complex making software. So there's always some bugs. Uh, and again, risk management and then traceability. Who made the error? Can we fire them? Can we trace back and fire them? Is it their fault? 100%. Right, so responsibility, the buck stops somewhere, doesn't it? Somebody's going to be, going to be hauled over the coals for it. Um, ultimately, we need somebody to blame to fix the system. So the responsibility, whose responsibility at the end of the day is that particular thing? Who could be held accountable? Accountability, normally, again, if you're a, a tier one sort of server manager, on your contract, it will say if if this drops below X percent, you're fired, buddy, because you're not doing the job properly. So somebody's going to be accountable, and some system will audit or keep track of all the different things and changes. So on the server uh, over an A block, every little file that's changed will have a timestamp against it, so they know exactly what went on when and where. Again, that's just an efficient way of finding out where the changes took place. If you've got a reasonably good auditing system, at some point you can say when things change, hopefully if there's a problem with serving, you go back to that point and then look around it and say what, what was going on at that particular time during that, that time frame that caused all these problems. So the more monitoring you've got going on, the easier it is to track back those problems and, and hopefully fix them. And one of the things that nobody in, in IT likes is to document it all. Right? Particularly software developers love writing loads of software, but they never tell you how to do it how it works, they hate writing the documentation, but 
documentation will tell you the current status of things, again in terms of risk management and organisational change and structure, change management, what is currently you know, the status of things, um, where are we, what version of that particular thing are we running, that's quite important, so you can then go back if there is some problem, you can say, ah, oh, well that problem occurs with version 6.2 but not with 6.25, so let's make sure they all get 6.25 or something. Um, there are various problems, I, I mentioned it to you, Wilfie, I think, KDE desktop version 6. whatever has currently got a problem with some drivers and they've updated it to fix some issues. But, okay, but if you know that, you, somebody's tracking that to know which version to work and which one isn't. All those decisions need to be written down, this is all the accountability and monitoring, so somebody signs off on stuff, you can go back through the records and say, well, who signed off on that big thing being up on the live side? Ah, so-and-so, no, bring him in the office, please. Uh, retaining change documentation, so any changes that are made to stuff should be recorded somewhere. It's all about the clarity of the information and documentation to be able to trace your steps back and make sure you can fix any problems. And then use your training manuals. Once you've figured out all these problems and you've got the stuff working properly, you then document it and say, this is how you use our system. And hopefully should people ever do it. And then you've got version controls. Right, so version controls. Um, Again, if there's bugs picked up, you need to be able to say that this particular version fixes that problem. And again, the classic example, Apache is used fairly widely by most people for website server. Uh, and Apache periodically will, will update bug fixes. Now, if you haven't applied those bug fixes, then your system is vulnerable. Uh, and, but people don't monitor that, the version control. So there was a big case some time ago, loads of sites got hacked because the actual admins hadn't been following the code and they hadn't updated that vulnerability and it was exploited. Currently, has anyone signed up for the Computer Weekly news feeds? Should I mention so one at the top of the Moodle page? I think so, yeah. What, C I couldn't C get that. Sorry. Couldn't get through. Oh, did you not get it in time? Because there was a time limit. When you first put it up, that's when it was free. Yeah, but if you missed that. Oh, I'll uh, see if I can refind it. There's a, there's a computer magazine which sends out news feeds once a day or once a week. And they're quite useful, particularly for this type of stuff. There was a, some sort of problem, um, I think this was with Windows recently, um, particular version of it that they had to fix quite quickly. So version control, you know what, where the problems are, hopefully, within that time frame. You say, well, that, that affected version 5, but not version 6, so make sure you tell the customers to upgrade to version 6 to fix it. Now, again, for technical support side of thing, that's stuff you're going to be doing all the time. When the customer phones up and says, oh, I've got a problem, are you, what version of software you use? Oh, 1.2.3. Oh, you need to upgrade to 1.2.4. That fixes it. Those types of things. Um, right. We're sort of out of time, aren't we? Any questions so far? So if we finish up one, well, can't do it next Thursday, can we? Next Friday, if we finish this one off, as per my my timetable, I didn't really want to do it that way, but uh, we'll finish it off next Friday. Number one, and then we'll move quickly through the other. Some of the other ones aren't quite as big, so we've got Marco, two a day, hopefully. Are you thinking of saying any homework? Well, obviously. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Hopefully, you learned something. If you didn't, listen to it again. You might actually learn.